0: Satan and Matrix Awareness, is Matthew, and we're back. A concise history of the common law. And we are speaking now about the Habeas Corpus Act. The period from 1660 to the revolution of 1689 is, however, more remarkable for its contributions to the public than to private law. The one other great legal reform of reign of Charles II was the passing of the Habeas Corpus Act in 1679. The writ of Habeas Corpus has played such a large part in the struggle for liberty that a short history of it must be given here. Like a good many other common law writs, its history can be traced back to the early age when legal procedure and administrative methods were still not distinguished, and together with the other pre- prerogative writs of mandamus, certiori, and the rest, its ultimate origin is in a simple command from the crown to one of its officials. In the reign of Edward I, there were several varieties of habeas corpus, serving different purposes, such as to secure the appearance of a defendant or of jurymen. Gradually, the courts acquired the habit of issuing the writ in order to bring before them persons who had been committed by inferior jurisdictions, particularly the courts of cities and local franchises. The motive of this policy seems to have been to enlarge the powers of the courts of Westminster at the expense of local tribunals, and the result was not infrequently confusion and injustice. Parties were even allowed to use this process when they had been committed by judgment of local courts for debt, so as to obtain their release and to defraud their creditors. It is not surprising, therefore, to find a steady stream of legislation restricting the scope of habeas corpus. At the end of the 15th century, the common law courts had nothing more to fear from local jurisdictions. A new antagonist appeared in the form of chancery, followed soon after by the courts of request in Star Chamber. The writ of habeas corpus was now turned against this larger game. The common law courts were indignant, indignant when chancery committed parties for suing at common law after they had been enjoined and Chief Justice Hughes proposed to release such prisoners by means of habeas corpus. The courts of admiralty and high commission were similarly similarly attacked, but it was in the seventh, 17th century that habeas corpus fought its greatest battle. The Crown had established the right of imprisoning without trial upon a warrant signed by the Secretary of State, and a few privy counselors alleging Her Majesty's special commandment. So check this out. The courts of Admiralty and High Commission were similarly attacked, but it was in the 17th century that Habeas Corpus fought its greatest battle. The crown had established the right of imprisoning without trial upon a warrant. Signed by the Secretary of State and a few privy counselors. So these devil spirits started fucking imprisoning people without even a trial. So, against so serious a claim, this was back in 1482. Wow. And guess what? That's 10 years before Christopher Columbus devil spirits. 1492 Against so serious a claim of state absolutism, habeas corpus became in the worlds of Selden the highest remedy in law for any man that is imprisoned. Throughout the Stuart period, habeas corpus was steadily used and improved by the courts of common law, but procedural difficulties stood in the way. Darnell's case had shown doubts the special command of the king was nevertheless there held to be a sufficient return and this rule was only abolished by the petition of right there were also doubts as to which courts were competent to issue it many of these defects were remedied in the habeas corpus act of 1679 which after much discussion finally passed the house of lords and then only owing to a mistake in the counting of the votes so the story goes by this act any judge during term or vacation must issue the writ unless the prisoner is obviously committed by lawful means prisoners are not to be imprisoned beyond the realm and the writ is to run in all privileged places later legislation at various states introduced still further improvements some striking examples of its use in more modern times, are Somerset's case where a writ of habeas corpus released a Negro slave from confinement in a ship on the Thames, on the ground that an allegation of slavery was not a sufficient return. In 1798, the writ was used to ensure a trial at a common law of a prisoner, Wolf Tone, who had been condemned by a court-martial. The stop of the ex-check here. There is one other incident in the reign of Charles II, which must be mentioned, for it introduces us to a more modern element in law and society. Merchants and tradesmen who had the means frequently made loans as subsidiary to their normal business. The scriveners, professional writers of courthand, who engrossed legal documents, were particularly associated with this business in the reign of Elizabeth. But after the Civil War and under the Restoration, it was the goldsmiths who became most prominent. Moreover, these goldsmiths invented a few variations which really turned the old casual money lending into professional banking. They accepted deposits from customers at first merely for storage in their vaults, but soon, in the more modern sense of deposits against which they issued notes. Already in Charles II's reign, such deposits could be drawn upon the customer's check. The goldsmiths became financiers, discounted bills, and also purchased tallies, receipts for money lent to the exchequer. These tallies were sometimes sold direct to the goldsmiths by the exchequer, thus serving as the machinery whereby the government raised short-term loans, and in 1672 the government found itself unable to meet them when they became due. This crisis was called the stop of the exchequer," and had serious results for the goldsmith and the depositors. Recent research suggests that the king's motives may have been less fraudulent than the Whig historians asserted, and that the resulting ruin has been grossly exaggerated here we are concerned only with the more general significance of the rise of banking and public finance with the need for new legal principles to govern them and with the great banker's case growing out of the stop of the exchequer, which settled the constitutional question of the right to bring a petition of right restoration of church and prerogative The reign of Charles II saw the re-establishment in a harsher form of the Church of England, and the short reign of James II witnessed a rapid crisis. The determination of that monarch to pursue a religious policy which was contrary to that solemnly laid down by Parliament in a long series of statutes was the immediate cause of his fall. It may have been that his project of complete toleration for Roman Catholics as well as dissenters was intrinsically in advance upon the partisanship of the church as represented in Parliament. But it is impossible to discuss the merits of the policy when the methods of its promotion were so drastic and so completely contrary to the spirit of contemporary institutions. James II claimed that by his prerogative, he could dispense individual cases from the operation of a statute. More than that, he even endeavored to suspend entirely entirely the operation of certain of the religious laws. Upon this clear issue, the conflict was fought out. After an ineffective show of military force, James II retired to France. William II of Holland was invited by Parliament to become joint ruler with his wife, Mary II, James' daughter, and so the Great and Glorious Revolution was accomplished. The terms of the settlement were embodied in the last great constitutional documents in English history, the Bill of Rights, 1689, and the Act of Settlement, 1701. The Bill of Rights... The principal portions of the Bill of Rights are as follows, that the pretended power of suspending of laws or the execution of laws by regal authority without consent of Parliament is illegal. Tallies being in Wood were often accompanied by written orders for repayment, whose importance is described by R.D. Richards. Okay, what does it say here? That the pretended power of dispensing with laws or the execution of laws by regal authority as it has been assumed and exercised of late, it is illegal that the commission for erecting the late Court of Commissioners for Ecclesiastical Causes and all other commissions and courts of like nature are illegal and pernicious. That levying money for or to use of the crown by pretence or prerogative without grant of Parliament for no for a longer time or in other manner than the same or shall be granted is illegal. That it is the right of the subject to petition the King in all commitments and prosecutions for such petitioning are illegal, that the raising or keeping a standing army within the kingdom in time of peace, unless it be with consent of parliament, is against the law, that the subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense suitable to their conditions and allowed by law, that elections of members of parliament ought to be free, that the freedom of speech and debates or proceedings in Parliament ought not to be impeached or questioned in any court or place out of Parliament. That excessive bail ought not to be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. That jurors ought to be duly impaneled and returned, and jurors which pass upon men in trials for high treason ought to be freeholders. That all grants and promises of fines and for, forfeitures of particular persons before conviction are illegal and void. And that for redress of all grievances and for, for the amending, strengthening, and preserving of the laws, Parliament ought to be held frequently. And they do claim demand and insist upon all and singular the premises as their undoubted rights and liberties and that no declarations judgments doings or proceedings to the prejudice of the people in any of the said premises ought in any way is to be drawn hereafter into consequences or example after the death of queen mary the act of settlement after the death of Queen Mary, 1694, William III ruled alone until he in turn was succeeded by her sister, Anne, 1702-1714, to 1714, who was therefore the last of the reigning Stuarts. In order to secure the succession, the Act of Settlement was passed in 1701, which not only limited the descent of the crown in accordance with which the present royal family reigns, but also added a few constitutional provisions supplementary to those of the Bill of Rights. It required the monarch to be in communion with the Church of England and not to leave the country without parliamentary consent and irksome provision, which was soon repealed. Membership of the Privy Council and of the Parliament was limited to British subjects of British parentage, parentage. It was like... It was likewise provided that no person who has an office or place of profit under the king or receives a pension from the crown shall be capable of serving as a member of the House of Commons. This attempt to limit the crown's influence in Parliament was subsequently amended in order to permit ministers of the crown to sit in the House of Commons by allowing them to seek re-election after their appointment to a salaried office, such was the practice until 1926 when the need for re-election was abolished. Another chapter provided that judges should hold office during good behavior at fixed salaries and that they should only be removable by His Majesty upon the address of both Houses of Parliament. The complete independence of the bench was therefore permanently established. Revolutions and political theory. The changes and chances of 17th century politics have produced a great number of varying theories concerning the state and the nature of government. In the beginning of the century, divine right was ranged against a parliamentarianism which looked to the Middle Ages for its justification. The period of the commonwealth accustomed people to see a succession of different forms of government set up and then deliberately pulled down. The lesson was clear, the people had in their hands the power and the right to set up forms of government according to their fancy. A large number of political thinkers of different schools took up this idea and were prepared to treat existing governments as if they had been deliberate product of popular action. It merely remained to ascertain exactly what policy the people had proposed to pursue when they did this. We consequently find many different suggestions as to the form which this original contract as they regarded it received. The 17th century and much of the 18th were occupied in searching for forms of contract which should afford a reasonable justification for political society either as it existed or as a philosopher thought it ought to exist. Thomas Hobbes. Out of this welter of speculation, only a few names can be mentioned here. Undoubtedly, the most remarkable of them was Thomas Hobbes, whose greatest work, The Leviathan, appeared in 1651. Unlike almost all of his contemporaries, his political rejected a study of history as having any bearing on political science. Instead, he pinned his faith to geometry, which is the only science that it had hitherto pleased God to bestow on mankind. Words which have a strangely familiar sound in these later days. His outlook was entirely entirely materialistic. All knowledge is derived through the senses. Every idea is the result of an effect produced upon an organ of sense by the motion of an external object. Felicity means success in getting what one wants. Were it not for civil government, life would consist of the ruthless competition of immoral men for desirable things, and would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. It is only the tremendous power of the state which protects the natural man against himself and his fellows, and from this power derive the ideas of justice and property. For in the pre-civil state that only a man's that that only is a man's that he can get and for so long as he can keep it where other thinkers had conceived of society as involving a contract between ruler and subject Hobbes devised a completely different scheme according to his view helpless and miserable mankind made a contract every man with another to submit to a ruler whom they all clothed with authority to govern them This ruler was no party to the contract and is therefore bound by no limitations. Consequently, it is impossible to talk about a sovereign having broken his contract with the nation, which was a common argument in the 17th century for no such contract existed. Nor is there any justifications for resistance to the sovereign. We seem to see in these theories a deep impatience with the turmoils of the Stuart period. Neither the antiquarianism of parliament nor the mysticism of divine right had any meaning to the dry, penetrating, but narrow mind of Hobbes. The troubles of the commonwealth deeply involved as they were with religion are reflected in his treatment of the church. His own position seems to be that of a deist. He recommends that there be but one church in a state and that under the absolute control of the sovereign leviathan, he even asserts that the sovereign necessarily has full authority to preach, baptize, and administer the sacraments, and that the clergy only perform these functions by delegation from the state, whose will is the source of both temporal and spiritual law. It is only natural that a century which was so animated by sincere religious decim- dissension should either neglect or revive a thinker at once. So original and so cynical. Well, this guy seems like a real devil spirit, huh, Thomas Hobbes? What a scum. He's saying that we're poor and nasty. And he's saying that uh, it's only the tremendous power of the state which protects the natural man against himself and his fellows from this power. Sick fuck. And what's up with Leviathan, his greatest work? Sounds like a devil spirit, like a demon, Leviathan. That was his greatest work, appeared in 1651. Guess we have to read that, huh? He's a demon. Thomas Hobbes, the devil spirit. All right, so that's what we have right now. And when we return, it'll be John Locke and the Revolution. So we'll get into that next. Thanks for listening, tuning in to Satan and Matrix Winners. Appreciate you, my listeners from all over the world. Make sure that you share this podcast, donate. Um, I appreciate everything you guys are doing. So if you are the first one to donate, that would be amazing. Otherwise, um, I guess it's just devil spirits. So I rebuke the devil spirits, and I wish everybody to prosper and. Do what we can to influence others in a positive way, positive energy only. Matthew, I'm out. Satanic matrix awareness. See you next time. Hey, everyone. This is Matthew from Satanic matrix awareness. And I want to just give this opportunity for all my listeners across the U.S., And um, as you know, I do solar sales, so I would love to work with some of my audience, any of my listeners, flat earthers with positive energy. That's who I'm looking to help out. So I am licensed in 10 different states right now, so let me go ahead and pull up them states for you. If you happen to live in any of these states and you want to go solar at your house you're a homeowner i'd love to give you a free consultation and um for all free list, for all the listeners if you do donate a hundred dollars you're going to get 12 months of no payments when you go solar with my company okay so motion solar groups who i work with and um, that's how I'm going to help you. If you live in Ohio, Texas, Utah, California, South Carolina, Nevada, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Arkansas. Those countries, I'm, I'm, those, those states, I'm able to help you to go solar. And it's going to be no money down. And um, you're going to save anywhere from $50,000 to 100000 or more. Depending upon how much uh, your energy bill is, so it's um it's a great program. The federal government's paying 30% for you to go solar with the tax credit. So definitely. Take a look at my website that I started. Um, It's a company that I pay referrals for also. So once you go solar with me, um, you actually can get paid $1,000 per referral. So if you go solar with me and my company, um, for every person that you refer to us that goes solar, you're gonna get a $1,000 referral, you get signed up, and uh, you'll get direct deposit in your account when that gets installed, the solar panel's on the roof, okay? so thanks for listening to satanic matrix awareness make sure to share this podcast check out the website www.gosunnysavemoney.com thanks for listening